Hello, and welcome to another show of auditing the global capital markets with Allison. Welcome once again to a great packed show as we move to Latin America. We've been exploring the global capital markets all year long. And as we enter our 22nd episode, we're going to dive back into Latin America. In fact, we're going to start in South America and start exploring some of the interesting information around the 1% and those that are very powerful in these South American markets. We will begin in Colombia. It is very interesting that for the nation of Colombia, there is a very powerful 1%, uh, as in all markets. And as of 2023, there are four main people that have been dominating, as we spoke about before, for the Colombian market of billionaires. So as of today, the richest person is Luis Carlos Sarmiento, who has a net worth of $6.4 billion, and he's got his sources of wealth from banking, and he's ranked 397th richest person in the world. Then you have David Velez with $4.5 billion in net worth from FinTech. And then you have Beatriz Davila de Santo Domingo with $3.6 billion in net worth from the beer industry. And the fourth being Jaime Gilensky Bacal, who is also with $3.6 billion in net worth from the banking industry. So Luis Carlos Sarmiento ranked 397th in the world, David Velez at 611th in the world, and both Beatriz Davida de Santo Domingo and Jaime Gilensky Bacal are at 787th richest in the world, coming from Colombia. And it's interesting because the estimates of their wealth varies. Um, the next level is uh, Carlos Ardila Lule, who has a wealth of $2.6 And his is um, an interesting lot as he is now 92 years old. And then there's Woods Staten, who has $1.7 Interesting for Colombia, the richest people in the world, without exception, uh, have you know gained their wealth in a number uh, of ways. And if you look at the business magnate, Luis Carlos Sarmiento, he garnered his fortune from the construction business and invested in banks, accumulating a fortune worth almost 10 to $13 billion uh, as of 2022, but his net worth has fallen this year. While David Velez, who is the 
co-founder and CEO of New Bank, has that more solid fortune of 6.5 billion US dollars. So this is from Statista. So it varies in terms of the ranking uh, because each each source kind of gives you a different total, um, but still puts them in the still in the same you know top ranking. Um, at one point, you also had some other players. Uh, you had Carlos Leather, uh, who was also uh, in the rankings, and he you know hovered about two point seven billion. You had Tatiana Santo Domingo. Uh, who was hovering at about 2.3 billion. Then you had Griselda Blanco um, at 2 billion. And, you know, before he was arrested, Pablo Escobar uh, had over $30 billion as a narco trafficking drug lord. Um, so, you know, people making their money from lots of different sources. Uh, and then you have Shakira. Shakira is from Colombia uh, and has a net worth over $300 million. And also Sofia Vergara, she's also from Colombia and her net worth is over $180 million. And those are two people who are coming from uh, non-industry, but from entertainment. James Rodriguez, has a net worth of $80 million. So he's a soccer player. And Radamel Falcao, uh, who's also a football player or soccer player, um, his is at $70 million. And then Juan Pablo Montoya at $35 million. Uh, he's a race car driver. And then you have John Leguizamo. And John Leguizamo is, as you know, an actor, comedian, film producer, screenwriter, television producer, and voice actor from Colombia. And his net worth is at 25 million. You have Juanes, and that's at 20 million. That's a musician and songwriter. Camilo Villegas uh, at $15 million, a, a golfer. Andy Lassner, who uh, has a net worth of 12 million, and he's a television producer. Carlos Valderrama, who is very popular as a football player or, or soccer player at $10 million. Charlie Za at $10 million, who is a singer. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who many of us know as an actor, author, journalist, novelist, publicist, screenwriter, and writer very famous writer from Colombia uh, with a $10 million net worth. Carlos Vives with $9 million, actor, composer, music artist, musician, singer, and songwriter. Jimene Duque at $5 million, an actress and a model. And number 20 is Angie Cepeda with $5 million, who's also an actor. And then you have a number of other people um, at uh, below $5 million. Anastasia Acosta with 4 million. Nina Garcia with 3 million. Juan Manuel Santos at 2 million. Viviana Serna at 1 million. Viviana Serna Ramirez. 
Zule Hanau at 1 million, Juan Fernando Quintero at 1 million, and Ingrid Betancourt at 500,000. And those are people who are actors. Anastasia Costa, actor and a model. Nina Garcia, actor, author, journalist. Juan Manuel Santos, economist, journalist, politician. Viviana Serna Ramirez, actor and a presenter. Zule Henao is an actor. Juan Fernando Quintero is also a, a soccer player or football player. And then Ingrid Betancourt is a political scientist and a politician. So that just gives you a sense of some of the players in, in Colombia. And what's fascinating is understanding, you know, the depth in which the richest families in Colombia uh, are quite powerful worldwide. Colombian billionaires and their families are a very popular discussion topic in the country. Colombia has a long history of gold mining that includes the robbing of the metal from the Native American Colombian uh, Indian graves. But nowadays, the Colombian's economy is more diversified. The South American country is rich with natural resources and uses them heavily as its export material. With the exploitation of hydrocarbon fuels and several metals, agricultural production and manufacturing, Colombia has managed to build one of the steadiest economies in the region. Like in most South American countries, the private enterprise dominates the economy and the government involvement is limited to railways, petroleum and telecommunications. While they also support private enterprises in order to steady up the economy even more. Colombia has dealt with inflation and job losses as well, but it was one of the few countries in the region that didn't have a debt crisis in the 1980s. The country has been continuously trying to diversify its economy and not to be so focused on the natural resources. Instead, it has been making moves to focus on hydroelectric power development and flood control in recent years. Colombia's market economy has grown due to good liquidity and the growth of credit and the positive performance of the Colombian economy. The Colombian Stock Exchange through the Latin American Integrated Market offers a regional market to trade equities and foreign exchange brokers have done a good job of establishing themselves on the regional market. This has also affected the number of billionaires in the country. While it must be said that the majority of the billionaires do come from the same family, there are some inspiring stories as well. Colombia had eight billionaires and there are some interesting stories that we can tell you uh, about their work and what they did to earn the billionaire status. Starting with Wood Staten, who's now 69 years old and his industry is fast food chains. And as you heard, he's got a net worth uh, that varies as low as 1.1 billion and as high as many two or 3 billion. Wood Staten got his wealth as McDonald's executive that has dedicated his work life to spreading the golden arches across Latin America. 
Arcos Dorados, which stands for Golden Arches in Spanish, paid $700 million to McDonald's in order to operate 1,560 restaurants and to get exclusive rights to operate McDonald's in Latin America and the Caribbean. Colombian billionaire Wood, Woods Staten resides in Buenos Aires, but holds Colombian citizenship. So he gets a spot on the list of the richest people in Colombia. He was born in Medellin, Colombia, and has been involved in consumer goods his whole life. Staten's grandfather was the original founder of Panamco, which is the largest supplier of bottles for Coca-Cola. So Staten does fit the profile of the billionaire that came from already a billionaire family. Staten was heavily involved with Panamco during his early years until branching out to do his own business. He first started working with McDonald's as a joint venture partner. One of the first things he did within the company was open a branch in Argentina, where he lives now, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Colombian billionaire Woods founded Arcos Dorados in 2007 when McDonald's decided to sell its operations in Latin America. Staten is the executive chairman of the board and controlling shareholder of Arcos Dorados, which to this day is the biggest McDonald's franchise. The franchise employs 95,000 people across 20 countries in Latin America and has a yearly revenue of almost $4 billion. Now he also focus, focuses on his other company, Endeavor Argentina, which promoted entrepreneurship across Latin America. Besides that, he's also a founding partner of Ashoka Argentina, which focuses more on social entrepreneurship across the world and innovative solutions to common problems. Now, Ashoka Incorporated is in Arlington, Virginia, and was founded by Mr. Draper, but I'm sure he's working closely with Woods Staten. Staten is passionate about promoting entrepreneurship across the region and encourages youth employment and skills training through IMD Foundation in Lausanne, Switzerland. Next, we have Jamie Galinsky Bacall, who's 62 years old and is in the banking industry with a net worth of $3.6 billion. This next billionaire on our list got his start in the banking industry. Jamie Galinsky Bacall currently lives in London and conducts his business from there. But he was born in Colombia, and that is where the majority of his formative years passed. Galinsky got his wealth by building one of the largest banking empires in Latin America by various mergers and acquisitions. But part of his wealth also comes from real estate development. While he doesn't necessarily owe his wealth to his family, his father, Isaac Galinsky Stradiowicz, was also a banker. So Jaime did have some examples to follow from the very beginning. He completed his education, earning a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering from Georgia Tech in 1978. 
but later he went on to complete his MBA at Harvard Business School in 1980. And now he has a fellowship at Harvard together with his wife. He clearly learned a lot at Harvard University since pretty soon after getting back from the States, he started working on acquisitions. In 1990, after Bank of Credit and Commerce International collapsed, he acquired the Colombian assets, renamed them Banco Andino, and turned it into one of the most successful banks in the Colombian banking system in the span of four years. Galinsky sold the bank after it had established itself on the market for a reported $70 million. This was just the beginning of Galinsky's bank acquisitions. Galinsky's family is responsible for the largest privatization in Colombia's history, thanks to their purchase of Banco de Colombia for $365 million. The family partnered up with the likes of Morgan Stanley Asset Management billionaire George Soros, and Tiger Asset Management on this deal. Besides banking, he is also involved in London and regional properties. He has developed the Panama Pacifico business and residential development in Panama City. Next third billionaire to be featured is Carlos Ardila Lule, aged now 89 years old, industry soft drinks with a net worth of $2.5 billion. The Colombian entrepreneur is the founder of the Organización Ardil Lule, which is an important conglomerate that controls companies like RCNTV, the Posto Bone soft drink, and the Atlético Nacional football team. He studied civil engineering at the School of Mines at the National University of Columbia. And soon after started to get into the soft drinks business as a plant manager for Gaseosas Lux. This is where he met his wife, a daughter of one of the company's owners, Antonio Gaviria. Antonio Gaviria. Lule worked on developing new flavors and promoting them and his big break came in the 1950s with the development of new soft drink flavored with Apple's Post Box. This type of soft drink was pretty rare back then, and it proved to be a major success for the company and the future Colombian billionaires. The success of this drink and the company in general allowed the family to start slowly branching out and acquired firms like Postobon. S.A., the company behind a popular Latin American drink, Cola Campaña. The two companies were soon united by the initiative of Lule and Ardila. And Ardila became the president of Postoban S.A. in 1968. The acquisitions became a frequent thing in the company, but later on, they branched outside of the soft drinks business. In 1978, he acquired textile company Coltejer, which has remained a leader in the textile sector in Antioquia. Later, the businessman sold his share in order to found Leona Brewery, and in 1996, it was a success. At this point, the Colombian billionaire felt safe enough to acquire Atletico Nacional, 
the Colombian soccer team, and he made Leona his brewery, Leona Beer, the main sponsor of the team. Before selling the breweries to Bavaria, a world famous brewery. Now he is still involved in the soft drinks business and is one of the richest people in Colombia. Next, we have the billionaire Alejandro Santo Domingo, age 42, also in the beer industry, the net worth of $3.9 billion. Alejandro Santo Domingo is one of the younger billionaires of the country and acquired much of his wealth thanks to his rich family. He is a Colombian American financier and philanthropist. He is the son of Julio Mario Santo Domingo and his second wife, Colombian socialite Beatriz Davila. Because of his privileged upbringing, he got to go to Harvard University and get a bachelor's degree in history and overall has stayed within the business of his family. Alejandro's career centers around the family's conglomerate, the Santo Domingo Group. The Santo Domingo Group has a majority stake in Bavaria Brewery that we just mentioned earlier, as well as Valores Bavaria, which is a holding company for his non-beer interests. Alejandro Santo Domingo is the chairman of Grupo Empresarial Bavaria, S.A., a privately owned subsidiary of S.A.B. Miller, and Alejandro is the vice chairman for Latin America. Besides being so heavily involved in the family business, Alejandro tries his best to give back to his community, and he is involved in multiple charity organizations. He is the director of Colombia's Endeavor, which we also mentioned earlier. Endeavor is an international nonprofit development organization that aims to find and support high impact entrepreneurs. He is a director of DKMS Americas, a nonprofit organization and the largest bone marrow donor center in the world. DKMS or DMKS has 3.6 million registered donors and is leading the fight against blood cancer. Even though it's easy to discard him as one of the many trust fund babies, really he has done a great job at making the most of what he was given. He gives back to his community and maintains a family business with a clean image. He is one of the better examples of people who were born into rich families and made the effort to work hard for what they have. And of course, we began our show with the richest person in Colombia, which now has a reported net worth of $12.2 billion from the banking industry at the age of 86. We're speaking of Luis Carlos Sarmiento. Yes, he is a Colombian billionaire. Luis Carlos Sarmiento got his wealth by investing the gains from his construction industry and investing it in banks. He's not the first billionaire to get on the list by working in the banking industry, and the whole sphere seems to be one of the most profitable in Colombia. His rise to prominence began in the 1950s 
when Sarmiento got involved with residential and commercial developments. Sarmiento managed to build a name for himself in this industry and made a substantial amount of money as well. After Sarmiento felt more secure in his career, he started an acquisition campaign that would soon elevate him into billionaire status. The acquisition process went on for decades with the Sarmiento billionaire focus on mostly banks and financial services companies. This venture turned out to be extremely successful for this Colombian businessman. And by 2000, he was directly acknowledged as Colombia's top mogul that was holding on to assets estimated at 22% of the local banking assets of Colombia. The percentage that was close to the maximum amount allowed by law. After the acquisition campaign paid off, the Colombian billionaire founded Grupo Aval, a holding company that would gather his banking, telecommunications, and real estate interests. He is one of the first successful entrepreneurs of the country and is well known in Colombia for his conservative management style. His approach is what got him to the billionaire status. And unlike many people on this list, he did not start out from the family of a billionaire. Sarmiento's approach is what got his holdings to survive the worst recession in Colombia's history and the Grupo Aval managed to bounce back soon enough. We then move to the next person and that's Andres Santo Domingo, who's the brother of Alejandro Santo Domingo. He is 41 years old, also of course from the beer industry with a net worth of $3.9 billion. Yes, it seems like Colombian billionaires either get their money from banking or from the beer industry because this person on the list is no exception. Andres Santo Domingo, just like most billionaires, got to his privileged position because of his family and their business. He has lived a pretty similar life to his brother, Alejandro Santo Domingo, whom we just talked about already. He graduated from the Hotchkiss School and got his bachelor's degree in and studied at the elite university in the United States of America getting his degree from Brown University. Andres Santo Domingo inherited a, inherited a part of his father's Julio Mario's multi-billion dollar stake in the beer company S.A.B. Miller. He got his shares in the company the years his father passed away around 2011. And a lot of what he inherited went into Anheuser-Busch in Bev because of the $100 million acquisition in 2016 when the Anheuser-Busch in Bev decided to acquire SAB Miller. Even though he sits on the board meetings at Anheuser-Busch in Bev, Andres has a variety of other interests that he attends to in his time away from the management. Despite living the life of luxury, Andres always loved music, so he ended up co-founding the vinyl-loving, rock-oriented record label, Quemado Records, in 2002, which is now called the Quemado Media Group. Despite that, Santo Domingo also sits on the boards of Conservation International, 
and the New York Public Library, which is the way of being more involved in his USA American community. Even though he is of Colombian heritage, he has grown up and lived in the USA for a long time and currently lives in New York City to this day. His nephew and niece, Julio Mario III and Tatian Casiragi, are also Colombian billionaires. Santos, Santo Domingos are dominating this list and now we'll discuss the other members of the family in more detail. Julio Carlos Santo Domingo is the next of the Santo Domingo family. He's 34 years old, also of course from the beer industry and has a net worth of $1.9 billion. One of the youngest billionaires and probably the most eccentric one on the list is the bachelor of the Santo Domingo family. Like his other family members, he comes from the Colombian family, but is now a USA citizen. He is part of the beer industry that his family runs, but he turned out to be the least interested in that business. Also probably because of his younger age. Julio Mario Santo Domingo is a famous DJ in New York City for the group Shake and Bake and is probably least conservative of all of the members of the family. He got his degree in architecture from Boston University, but clearly he has chosen a different path for himself since now DJing, DJing music festivals is his primary job. Considering he and his family are considered royalty in Colombia and basically everywhere else too, he didn't have much to worry about. Currently, he DJs live events like the Electric Zoo and Electronic Beach Festival in, in Belgium and has made a name for himself outside of his family business. Julio is definitely the odd one in the family, but it seems to be working out for him so far. Then there's Tatiana Santo Domingo Casiragi, who is 36 years old now from that same Santo Domingo beer industry family with a net worth of $1.8 billion. She's the last person from the Santo Domingo family that we will discuss today, and she has lived quite a life. Despite being the part of one massive, powerful, and most influential families in the world, she has also managed to become a part of another widely influential family. She's married to Andrea Casiraghi, who is the fourth in line of succession to the Mongasque throne. That's for Monaco. So in Monaco, they call themselves Monegasque. So she's the granddaughter of Julio Santo Domingo, and she was born in New York and raised in Geneva, Switzerland and Paris, France. Even though she is technically not a Colombian citizen, we still felt that she needed to be on the list as the prominent and the only female member billionaire in the Santo Domingo family. Tatiana takes up after her mother, who was a Brazilian socialite from Sao Paulo in Brazil, who has a boutique in Paris. Tatiana was once very involved in the fashion industry and has interned for Vanity Fair magazine in New York City and has worked with the fashion label Alberta Ferretti. 
She mostly deals with the family business by maintaining different charity organizations that were set up by her family members and, of course, attends to her status as a royal. Tatiana married Casiraghi in a civil ceremony in the princely palace of Monaco on August 31st, 2013. They have two kids together. She speaks, oh, the same languages that I speak. She speaks Spanish, French, English, Portuguese, and Italian, which makes her status as a royal socialite even more appropriate. She is known for her unique sense of style and friends with other famous socialites. She definitely took a different route and used her wealth differently than the rest of her family, but she seems to be fitting right in with the Monaco royalty and has managed to establish herself as a fashionable, philanthropic, and cultural socialite, which is still more than most people can say for themselves, that's for sure. And it is very powerful that when you look at the wealthiest people in Colombia, there is that mix of wealthiest people that have gained it from their work, whereas those that have inherited it uh, from their families, like the Santo Domingo family. And I think that's the case in a lot of the families when you look across the Latin American landscape. And it's interesting that the Latin American wealth has varied over the years. Uh, certain people have, you know, grown on the list. Certain people have fallen off the list. Um, and we're covering country by country to see where things stand as of today. And I think because Alejandro Santo Domingo Davila started out with a little less than $12 billion, his children were able to get pieces of it. Um, and that's why each of them, you know, has three to four billion each. And now it's fascinating to look at some of the other countries um, to understand their landscape, uh, to cover a little bit more this show. Uh, because it's it's just so powerful to really look and see, you know, where people are are gathering this wealth and and how they're gathering it and where it's concentrating. So it's interesting now to move on. We've hadn't we haven't had a chance to cover Bolivia, so it would be interesting to to talk about Bolivia and to see a little bit about the situation there, because Bolivia is a rich resource country with strong growth attributed to captive markets for natural gas exports to Brazil and Argentina. However, the country remains one of the least developed countries in Latin America because of state-oriented policies that deter investment. And following the economic crisis during the early 1980s, reforms in the 1990s spurred some private investment, stimulated some economic growth, uh, and tried to cut poverty rates. But the period of 2003 to 2005 was characterized by political instability, the racial tensions between the indigenous populations, and the 
people of European descent and violent protests uh, and plans that subsequently were abandoned to export Bolivia's newly discovered natural gas reserves to large northern hemisphere markets. And that was stomped out, but it created um, a lot of tension. In 2005 to 2006, the government passed hydrocarbon laws that imposed significantly higher royalties and required foreign firms then operating under risk-sharing contracts to surrender all production to the state energy company in exchange for a predetermined service fee. The laws engendered much public debate. And then high commodity prices between 2010 and 2014 sustained rapid growth and large trade surpluses with GDP growing 6.8% in 2013 and 5.4% in 2014. But the global decline in oil prices that began in late 2014 exerted downward pressure on the price Bolivia received for exported gas and resulted in lower GDP grade, uh, growth rates of only 4.9% in 2015 and 4.3% in 2016. And losses in government revenue, as well as fiscal and trade deficits, a lack of foreign investment in the key sectors of mining and hydrocarbons, along with conflict among social groups, posed challenges for the Bolivian economy. In 2015, President Evo Morales expanded efforts to court international investment and boost Bolivia's energy production capacity. Evo Morales passed an investment law and promised not to nationalize additional uh, industries to improve the investment climate. And in early 2016, the government of Bolivia approved the 2016 to 2020 National Economic and Social Development Plan aimed at maintaining growth of around 5% and reducing poverty. And so that's what stimulated the uh, growth in the economy and some of the really powerful people that, that followed. And we'll, we'll be able to cover the richest people in Bolivia. Uh, obviously, uh, some interesting stories here. So the first uh, is that there's a lot of history in Bolivia that's, that's very fascinating uh, in, in terms of where the wealth stemmed from and how the power was distributed. So it'll be interesting to start with some of the history and then we can move on to the current situation. If we can't this show, we'll move on into the next show. Because if you look at the history, it really shows since 1492, what's been happening in Latin America. So if you start, Simon and Antenor Patino, father and son, and owners of 10 mines. They were both born in Oruro in 1862 and 1894, respectively. They were the top mine owners in the 19th and 20th centuries. Their immense fortune earned them each the title of 10 baron. Antenor diversified his father's investments when he inherited them from Simon Patino, purchasing shares in international companies, and he was also a diplomat. They died in 1947 and 1982, respectively, major powerhouses. Then there was Max Fernandez, originally from Cochabamba. He was a beer factory owner. He was born into a poor family and began selling beer wholesale, growing a small venture until he was able to purchase the Cervecería Boliviana Nacional, 
the largest beer producer in the country. He also became a politician, founded his own political party called Unidad Civica Solidaridad, which still exists. He died in an aircraft accident in 1995. The Kujis, the Kuljis brothers, both businessmen were born in Santa Cruz de la Sierra. Using an inheritance from their father, Mateo, the brothers, Ivo and Tomislav Kuljis, have gradually acquired shares in numerous companies and banks, such as the Banco Economico, one of the largest of the country. Tomislav Kuljis expanded the hypermaxi chain of supermarkets, which now has stores throughout the country and Ivo built a university. Then there's Rafael Mendoza, a businessman from Cochabamba. He began nearly 60 years ago with a soda pop bottling factory and has diversified to include several packaging and paper companies, among others, all under the control of the Grupo Mendoza de Inversiones. He is also a dedicated philanthropist, having created and presided over the Rafael and Antonieta Mendoza Foundation, along with his wife. Then there's Mauricio Hochschild of Jewish German origins. This mining industrialist immigrated first to Chile and then Bolivia in the early 1920s. And in both countries, he established his company, Mauricio Hochschild and Compañía, dedicated to metal rescue. In Bolivia, he would create a new company bearing his name to exploit and manage mines and industrial compounds, which was to create a big factory in 1927 for the treatment of low grade ores accumulated as refuge from the high grade ores and would be the first factory of this type in the country of Bolivia. Then he founded the corporation South American Mining Company in Argentina for the commercialization of all metals in Bolivia and sulfur and salt petter in the Chilean desert. That company would end up exploiting several rich mines in the country, including the Cerro Rico, and would also administer railroads and hydroelectric power plants, one of which was near the Titicaca Lake. His companies would run successfully until they were expropriated by the state during the 1952 revolution in Bolivia. Then there's Carlos Victor Aramayo. He was born in Paris, France in 1889 to Bolivian parents residing there in France. And as heir to a wealthy silver mining dynasty, he was educated in Europe in exclusive schools and the University of Oxford. Back in Bolivia, he took charge of the family mining company but in tin exploitation, built a luxurious mansion that's now a foreign embassy residence and a national heritage building and acquired shares in important newspapers like La Razón. He also got involved in politics as finance minister and ambassador of Bolivia in Britain, but had to go into exile when the 1952 revolution started as he was one of the three world famous tin barons together with Patiño, and Hochschild. So his mines and mining factories were confiscated by the state. He never returned and died in Paris in 1981. Aniceto Arce, 
He is more known in Bolivia as one of its presidents. But this native of Tarija, born in 1824, was a millionaire mining industrialist before he debuted in politics. He lived most of his life and was educated in the capital city of Sucre, from where he had to flee to Chile due to political persecution. And it was in that country that he studied the mining industry, the knowledge that he'd apply on his return to Bolivia. He made a considerable fortune in silver mining thanks to ownership of the great silver mine, Juan Chaca. And after a stint as vice president of Bolivia and in several diplomatic missions in South America and Europe, he finally decided to run for the presidency. In that office, he persisted stubbornly in finishing the Chile Oruro Railroad, opposed vehemently by his rivals, and that on his completion, it contributed to the Bolivian mining boom, as it made it easier to transport produce from the mines to the Pacific coast, and remains his biggest contribution to the country's industries, the finishing of the Chile Oruro Railroad from Bolivia to Chile. Then there's Marcelo Clauri, a La Paz native born in 1970 and currently residing in the United States of America. He is a finance and economics graduate. At a relatively young age, he founded a small cell phone distribution enterprise that he later sold. And after working again for another telecommunications company, he founded Bright Star Corporation in 1997 a company dedicated to wireless services and equipment that is now a presence in 50 countries all over the world. Besides communications, he also is known for being the owner of the Bolivar Football Club from La Paz. And for that and other invert, uh, in investments, he's considered one of the richest Bolivians, Marcelo Cao. Then lastly, there's Miguel Kriegsner, he was born in La Paz, Brazil, pardon me, La Paz, Bolivia, and moved to Brazil more than four decades ago to study biochemistry and pharmacy at the Paraná Federal University. He stayed in that country, opening with a small investment, a shop to sell his skincare products in the city of Curitiba, and in time, the company expanded. Currently, the cosmetics firm U Boticario is the second biggest in Latin America and has made Kriegsner the only Bolivian to be included in the ranking of billionaires around the world that the magazine Forbes magazine publishes each year. Aside from his corporation U Boticario, he is also a philanthropist and founder of the Fundação de Proteção à Natureza, the protection of the National Environment Foundation, which is an institution that was founded for ecological purposes. So very fascinating to understand some of the founders of the wealth in Bolivia. And now if we look at what's happening with the billionaires and the millionaires at this point, uh, in the Bolivian history, it's uh, very, very important because of all of the unrest that plagues Bolivia uh, because of what's happened uh, since the founding of the country. 
we can see, as in most of Latin America, the percentage of income held by the richest 20% of the population, uh, it tends to be upwards of 50%. So a tremendous amount of, of inequality. And, you know, that spurs a lot of the unrest, not just in Bolivia, but across the region. So at this point, if you look at the uh, overall situation in, in Bolivia, the richest people are still the same names uh, that we've been reviewing from years past, uh, but they also now include a few new people. For instance, Verona Puz, who is a presenter and a voice actor um, who has wealth of over $5 million, and the former president, Evo Morales, also was able to garner a tremendous amount of wealth as well of over half a million dollars. But the majority of wealth is still in the hands of those from the mining industry, uh, which is the predominant industry for, for Bolivia. So at this stage, they will notice a uh, uptick you have um, Fortunato Maldonado, Maria Otero, Marcelo Clau, Miguel Gayert Krigsner, Gabriela Flores, Alvaro Garcia, Juan del Granado, Manfred Reyes Villa, Elizabeth Verastegui are some of the people that show um, increasing levels of dominance in terms of the wealth uh, in the country. And Bolivia is very much a country that has a tremendous amount of, of hidden wealth uh, that you have to really investigate where all the money is from those original people we just discussed who have been dominating um, the wealth in the country. And there are some massive uh, fights uh, that have been going on for a long time um, about climate justice and the issues around the mining industry and other fossil fuel industries in Latin America um, that create the multi-billionaires um, but that are um, you know, heavily uh, polluting the environment. So the wealthy Bolivians have a tremendous amount of money uh, that they've put abroad. And the international reserves in Bolivia are constantly plummeting um, as local and, and foreign corporations move money out of the country. Um, so you know, the reserves are constantly dropping from that. And that's happening in any of the markets when you see uh, changes from the power uh, in the hands of, of the elites to, uh, to you know, the transfer attempting to create more equity uh, in the society. So if we move on 
we can just have a few minutes to see if there's anything else that we can touch on on Bolivia, and then we can pick up on the other countries in the next show. So I think that it would be good to review a little bit about some of the interesting information about Bolivia. Uh, yeah, Bolivia is a is a country of contrast uh, with a rich history, diverse culture, and stunning natural beauty. Uh, I have been across Bolivia. It's located in the heart of South America, and Bolivia has a, a unique mix of the indigenous cultures and the Spanish influences from Spain, you know, that have shaped its culture over the centuries. It has bustling cities like La Paz to the very remote Uyuni salt flats that are very stunning. So Bolivia has a lot to offer uh, for people particularly who are traveling. Um, the, the country has a rich history that dates back, back thousands of years. Uh, the indigenous Aymara and Quechua groups have lived in Bolivia for thousands of years and have had a significant impact on the country's culture and traditions. However, the arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century brought about a new chapter, of course, in Bolivia's history. The Spanish colonized Bolivia and their influence is still evident today in the language, religion, and the way of life of the Bolivian people. Bolivia gained independence from Spain only in 1825, but the country's political history has been marked by instability and conflict. One of the most famous events in Bolivia's history is the Chaco War fought between Bolivia and Paraguay from 1932 to 1935. The war was brutal and resulted in the loss of thousands of lives on both sides. In the latter half of the 20th century, Bolivia experienced a series of political upheavals, including coups, dictatorships, and democratic reforms. Now today, Bolivia is a democratic country with a diverse population that is proud of its heritage and history. Visitors to Bolivia can learn about the country's fascinating past by visiting museums and historical sites throughout the country, such as La Paz's National Museum of Archaeology and the ruins of Tiwanaku. As the first indigenous president, Evo Morales led the country with a social government until, 19, until 2019. Bolivia's rich history, coupled with its stunning landscapes and warm people, make it an exciting destination. It has a rich and diverse culture. And it is an amazing place for lots of reasons as, as a result. From the religion that is a uh, mixture of the Catholic religion with other indigenous beliefs and rituals, um, the interesting ceremonies that revolve around the cocoa leaf, the food, uh, which is a very um, delicious cuisine, uh, which is a fusion of indigenous and Spanish cooking. So it's got all kinds of things to offer. And many people find uh, visiting Bolivia uh, an, enchanting, an enchanting place from Lake Titicaca to going to the capital of La Paz and on to Tiwanaku and Potosi. The fascinating world in South America. 
and many fascinating places to visit across the country. And a very rich history. We have had a very rich discussion today about Colombia and Bolivia. And those are just two of the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean that we would like to cover. But it is important to have a chance to round out the discussion before jumping into Peru, Chile, Argentina, other countries next time. We are here auditing the global capital markets, every show, to really understand the depth and complexity of the financial markets, the global economy, and the interconnectedness of all of us, and the power of a very small group that predominate the global economy, but rely on all 8 billion of us to have the global capital markets work. So it's very important to continue our education and our exposure to each market because there are over 200 countries in the world and each one is impacting the other in one form or shape or another. And that's what we're doing here every show, auditing the global capital markets with Allison. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us and we thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach me at allison at 2414morgan.com or at www.2414mdinternational.com. And we'd be very happy to review with you all of the issues that we've been covering in the episodes and answer any questions that you may have. We're also available across all social media platforms. We just joined Thread today, but we're already on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, across LinkedIn, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, Vimeo, and all the different social media platforms like Twitter that allow us to communicate and explore all of the exciting developments that are happening across our global economy. So tune in for our next show and be in touch. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you have a great day wherever you are in the world. Take good care. And thanks again. I'm Allison Johnson, now in Claremont, California, reporting live, bringing you Auditing the Global Capital Markets with Allison. Cheers.